out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist and uh, composer, songwriter, artist. It is the one and only Andy Moore. One-time member of the Dog-Faced Hermans and also is currently a member of the X and has been in various other musical combos over the last few decades. Anyway, this is the interview, so after several minutes of casual but happy chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Andy, tell us everything, tell us now. Actually, the first thing that happened is I bought a, I bought a record player off a guy and it was like for five quid. And with the record player, I got 10 records as well. And Changes by David Bowie was in it. Right. Aladdin, and Aladdin Sane. The Baker Gervitz Army. I don't know if you remember the Ginger Baker. And um, a, a, a couple of other things I can't remember. So I just, and Queen. But I, So I just listened to these 10 records for like, because that's all I had. I didn't have, I didn't have much money then. I yes. don't know how old I was, maybe 15 or 16. I don't know. So that was my first... Uh, my first um, kind of experience of listening to my own records. And then I discovered John Peel. Yes, well, that that was very handy. And did you come from a slightly (laughs) musical house? Did your parents listen to music at all? My mother was an opera singer. Was she? Yeah. So there was always music in the house. Um, And um, actually, she was learning classical guitar, and then she decided to become an acupuncturist. And because of that, she had to stop playing because you have to um, feel people's pulses on, um, to test their kind of health. And you're, so your fingertips need to be totally sensitive. Mm. So she gave up playing guitar and she gave it to me. So that's that's actually how I started playing. I got my mum's classical guitar. Yes, it's all about those energy lines, aren't they, of your body, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, there you go. And did she stick with Acu- um, Did she stick with it? Yeah. I got an electric guitar then, and then I sort of started listening to all this. Well, actually, listening to John Peel really changed a lot. And then I went to Edinburgh to study, and I met this guy, Colin, and he he was DJing one night, and he was just playing an incredible amount of music that I'd never heard before, and all of it was amazing. And I went up to him and said, what is this music? And he said, just come round once and I'll play. And, he, and I went around to his house and he gave me about 100 LPs to take home over the whole summer. You know, he just, I just met him for the first time. And he just said, borrow these and listen to this. And it was James Brown, The Contortions, Ornette Coleman. It was like a whole, it was a lot of black music also. And I just spent the whole summer listening to that. And I think that was the, the biggest musical kind of explosion that happened in my head. My God. That's so trustworthy, trusting. Yeah, and I really, I, I still, he still, like, turns me on to new music. Like, he says, listen to this, and he, he's still doing it now. Like, we, he lives in Amsterdam as well, so we still uh, exchange, like, music all the time. Yeah, he, he was in Dogface Hermans. He was the bass player. Blimey. So he, so he, obviously, a, he obviously trusted yeah. you greatly to do, to sort of just give you a hundred records. Believe, yeah, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> And I also <laughs> discovering the contortions was really uh, that I mean I listened to that record a lot. This record called "Bye," mm-hmm. and um, I was just I just thought it was crazy, like the slide guitars on it. I just thought that's mental. And um, 
Sonic Youth also. That's also a bit discovering all. Yeah, yeah, that kind of big. That was a big. What do you call that? An epiphany or something? Yes. Well, I, I suppose I grew up. I had a another brother who was seven years older than me, and he was he was just perfect for prog rock in so many ways. I also I grew up in the countryside, so that feels like culturally you're you're sort of in a bit of a lands barren landscape, aren't you? Punk punk never got to the countryside at all, really. Yeah. Um, but you know, I I sort of. We, you know, we grew up in a house, which I suppose, you know, my parents were very working class. So, you know, when they got their property together in the late uh, 50s, I mean, they were a generation who never borrowed money. So they just sold all their stuff. So we didn't get a record player in the house until the early 70s. And like you, in a way, you know, there was no records. And then there was, you know, a record player. And then my brother got Sergeant Pepper and he got goodbye yellow brick road and i just played these all the time you know and then then he started bringing other records in and you play oh yes yes or genesis or wishbone ash and the solo work of rick wakeman you know and with great enthusiasm and then you think and then like you john peel suddenly started to appear in my life because it was like where do you hear new music someone said oh you listen to john peel and it's like and the first time it was I, i remember it was wire and i am the fly and i thought god this is a bit weird this is a bit strange, isn't it? I'm not sure if I like it, but it's kind of interesting. And then, you know, you start hearing more and more and then become, you put your sort of trusty TDK D90 cassette in and start recording it and and sort of (laughs) scribbling on this kind of cover, like, oh yeah, there's a really good track on here somewhere by somebody you can't remember. Yeah, it was just, it was just kind of an exploration. It was a kind of a nerdy fascination. So yeah, for me, it was good. So when did you, I mean... John Peel used to do this festive, was it festive 50 every year? The festive 50, my God, did we record those ones. Yeah. (laughs) I think all my friends have like stacks of those from every year. But there was another radio show before John Peel called Your Mother Wouldn't Like It. Do you remember that? I think it was called Your Mother Wouldn't Like It. And he used to play Mummy's Weekly. And it was just like Led Zeppelin, this kind of, it was more sort of old dinosaurs of rock. And that was the, that was the kind of first radio. But I already kind of knew that music and I kind of was getting bored of it. So when John Peel, it wasn't when John Peel came along, he was already there. I just uh, discovered him at a certain point. I suddenly, it was a totally different sound. Like, you know, all this stuff that sounded really raw. And also such a weird, um, you know, he played so many different styles. If you think now of all the different genre, all the genres of, of the radio, like in, in England, like all the different radio shows, John Peel played all that stuff. And now you have one DJ for each style. Yes. He, he covered it all. Well, it was quite, it was quite fortunate because I, you know, Though I, I like indie pop, I sort of realise I get quite, you know, to be honest, I get quite bored of listening to the same pro show, you know, the same yeah. specialist show. So I would try and listen to a reggae show, but I'd get bored. But John Peel, like you said, you know, he'd play an indie track, but then he'd play the Bundy Boys, then he'd play, you know, yeah. an early Public Enemy or Steady B or Roxay Chante or, you know, Thomas McFumo or Martin, Martin Sebastian and, and, you know, all this Bulgarian yeah, yeah. folk music. And it really appealed, really is good for my personality or, or character because it's like, yeah, I really like that because if I got the whole album, which I would do, I'd listen to a bit and think, I'm a bit bored now. But, yeah. but you know, there was just like, and the rap music was exactly like that. You'd get the album. He's, oh my God, there's only one good track. And John Peel played the damn thing. Played the rest yeah, of that's it. the thing. He played, he played the good tracks as well. I mean, 
he was he, he was eclectic and he played the really good stuff. Yeah, so there was the you know that Gregory Isaacs, Dennis Brown, you know all that kind of uh, Sly and Robbie stuff. All that was just like unbelievable. So being a, a person of that age at that time, you know, all those gigs I went to were just all basically, oh yeah, John Peel played. I'll go and see Sly and Robbie in the Taxi Gang tonight, and oh, I'll go and see yeah. the Bundu Boys. And you know, you turn up and think, oh my god, that was you know, it was all. It was kind of happening, wasn't it, as they say. So and the um, great thing was through through all that he played the fool. He continuously played the fool. You know, all this all the all these different sort of styles of music went through and then he always went back to the fool, which I thought was great. That was really like a sort of reference point. Um right 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 up until the end, I guess he played. Yes. But the other thing that he did, just kind of slightly on that subject, was that he also introduced me to a lot of kind of 50s and 60s soul music on the Kent record label. I, I even yeah. went and bought some of those kind of collections yeah, yeah. and Ella Washington and and uh, Irma Thomas. And he would all, Aaron Neville, I remember him going and playing an Aaron Neville track. And I remember kind of had to scribble it, go and buy it, you know. So it wasn't just like, yeah. you know, he, he yeah. did pick that up and then he did, you know, Captain Beefheart and, you know, various other people. So there were those kind of very, like, interesting moments that you just thought, okay, this a, it was an education, but it was just brilliant that he he didn't just stick to one genre. So um, I was quite relieved, really. Because even though I did love indie pop, there's just so much of it you can cope with, really. You're right. <laughs> So look, then, in, okay, so in the early 80s, you know, well, late 79, Thatcher gets in, yeah. you know, we have the Faulkner Moor, then we have, you know, the Miner Stripe, Greenham Common, then there was Red Wedge, you know, and a lot of bands I've interviewed, you know, their early formative time were, was kind of, you know, being unemployed on, you know, Claim and Dole, Job Seekers Alliance, Enterprise Alliance Scheme. So did you have a slightly kind of similar world of those kind of, that set up, I suppose, which kind of brought a lot of bands together, including Big Flame. Exactly that. I mean, it wasn't slightly, it was exactly that. I mean, we, 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 we were students, so we had grants for a while. And then once the, our um, once we stopped being students, we didn't have grants anymore. And we all went on the dole. And then there was this year where you had the enterprise allowance where you could get 40 quid, was it 40 quid a week? We could. But you had to get a thousand pound in the banks, bank somehow, didn't you? Yeah, I that... can't remember that bit. I don't, I don't know where I would have got a thousand quid for. I don't remember that. A lot of people it's said they just passed the same thousand quid around to say. Maybe we did that. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. So <laughs> for me, it was like, and so, you know, so I got sometimes a bit of stick for being on the dole, you know, the, just not looking for a job. And I just said, I'm, I'm an artist. This is my subsidy. <laughs> And I, we we were working hard. It wasn't like we were doing nothing. We were rehearsing and, and really doing tons and tons of stuff. But we were earning such little money that we wouldn't have survived without that forty quid a week. That really no. really helped us at the time. Sorry, let me switch that. Up. Um, so for me, that was really, and that lasted until I moved to Holland in the nineties. Right. Okay. Not then. the enterprise allowance, but the doll money. We managed to sort of keep. Keep, keep that going until I move to Ireland. Yes, there's a lot of TVP tins of tomatoes. I have no idea how we managed to survive because we used to get like 30 quid for a gig or something and we, we were touring quite a bit, but we had nothing. We really, you know, we didn't have, we had a van, we managed to get a van somehow, a tranny van, of course, and um, we toured all over, mostly all over England, but really coming back with 
not much money and so yes. but somehow managed to survive. Well, most bands, right. I mean, I remember Fast Eddie from Motorhead saying that when they first started, they would, they would sometimes not have any money to get back from a gig. So they would have to <laughs> slightly sabotage their van and then get, you know, phone the AA just to get them back because they yeah, had yeah. literally no money. <laughs> or a member right. of the Wolfhound saying they went to Scotland, you know, Glasgow for a gig and they turned up and it was like, it's cancelled, but we've got no money. So they had to just literally start busking for a week to get some cash. So it's really hard to that imagine that. romantic, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I think it is when you're in your late teens and early 20s. I think that's when you... Yeah. But it was like, you know, as, as you know, Fast Eddie said, there was just absolutely, you wouldn't believe how little money there was. There was just... I think he, he said there was not a pot to piss in or something. That was his term. So, um, yes, there was, there was absolutely, you just scraping by, weren't you, really? Sort of waiting for sort of, what's it, happy hour at the pub so you can go and get warm for a, an hour. Yeah. And, um, and, being, yes. and maybe being in Scotland, we, you know, because this whole scene of bands that we were sort of part of, it felt to me like that was really from the Midlands, really from, like, Manchester. And, and we were way up in Scotland, so we were kind of a bit... De- geographically a bit detached from it coming all the way down was quite an operation for us um so for quite a while we, we were just playing in edinburgh and glasgow and small places up in scotland and then yes. slowly we started discovering actually through musicians collectives there seemed to be musicians collectives in some of these places and through that we slowly started coming down south and playing playing in, in northern england first and then eventually in london and stuff Yes. And when did the when did you form the band? I mean, were, were you sort of how did it all gravitate together? Well, it started the, the band was first um, it it started as a band called Volunteer Slavery, which is a Roland Kirk song. Yes. You know, um, and uh, that was six of us. And we were just hitting oil barrels. This was like in 83 or 84. We were just like literally we had three oil barrels at the front of the stage, which we would all be bashing we were switching all instruments there was horns and it was just a kind of improvised racket um but it was really fun and the audience joined in and then that stopped and three or four of the band members from that we decided to then okay let's play guitar and drum you know a kind of more normal instrumentation and it seemed that the best songs were the ones where i play guitar and colin played bass so we ended up with that formation but it happened a bit like that we just discovered that that was the best the best combination and the trumpet player and singer married she really came she she played trumpet but she didn't come out of the sort of jazz world at all she came out of um the what's it called i've forgotten what the name of the organization is a very christian organization (laughs) oh right okay um, so that she was really playing trumpet. There was more like hymns and stuff. Okay. Yeah. So that that also for me that made it really special because she played really catchy catchy melodies and tunes and she had great lyrics. And she she wasn't really expecting to be. She was an art student. She wasn't expecting to be in a band or expecting to sing. That was a nice thing about it. It sort of grew a bit. Salvation Army. That's it. The Salvation that's she, Army. And that's where she came out of. Yeah. The tunes. Yes. Yeah, that's where she learned to play anyway. Yes, the happy wing of the Christian movement. But yeah. did you were you a little bit influenced or aware of that kind of New York kind of no wave scene that was had been developing? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I, I mean. That's well, Colin 
he gave me this record, the the one that Brian Eno produced, but that yes. has all these all these crazy bands on it. And my favorite one on it was the Contortions, and also this Contortions record. So that that really that really um influenced us in the beginning. But we also heard um, all the Ron Johnson stuff quite early because we started a bit later, um, and we heard all this Ron Johnson stuff and Bogshed and stuff and the Membranes, and um. We, we sort of started getting in contact with them. We organized gigs for them up in Edinburgh also. So it happened quite fast. But we also listened to a lot of um, improvised and free jazz and African music. There was a great place in Edinburgh called the Queen's Hall. An art ensemble of Chicago played there. Don Cherry played there. Like all these amazing um, free jazz players from the 60s and 70s came up to Edinburgh and played in this one place. And, and we saw like tons of that stuff. So that also went into our music yes and, um, and African music a lot of African music especially East African music and I don't know it's sort of, it was a big mess a big mess of stuff which which I th which I thought was great that it wasn't just we weren't stuck in a kind of corner or something that was quite ambitious isn't it I mean it's like bringing so many little bits of you know like different worlds together must have been was it exciting but sometimes frustrating did you know what you were doing no <laughs> not at all it wasn't it never felt ambitious it just felt like we love this um so it'll be in our music we didn't try to play we didn't try to play like these jazz guys because they were just amazing we just took a bit you know we just listened to that stuff so it kind of filtered into our music I mean, we couldn't play. We, we, we were teaching ourselves as we went along. We would make a song, and the way we learned to play it was by playing it live a hundred times. Right. That's it. That's that's always that's always the key, isn't it? Just rehearsing. That's that's it, really. Yeah, yeah. So, when you finished your degree, did you did you just was music just going to be your main occupation at that stage? You weren't doing. I didn't finish my degree. You didn't finish it. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> because I wanted to play music, so I stopped after two and a half years. I was studying social anthropology, and actually, I was studying ethnomusicology. Um, out, but there was it wasn't on the syllabus, and I, and so I realised that was the what I was interested in. But if I tried to study that, I wouldn't pass the exam, so I kind of gave up. But there was a library in Edinburgh full of African music, and I used to go there and just record tons of the stuff. So, I mean, that's what I spent quite a bit of my anthropology time doing, just listening to African music mostly. Yes. Um, and, and I quit after two and a half years, and then we just started really playing all the time. Yeah, I mean, that's quite something, because that must have been just before Easter, with only just a few more months to go, before Christmas. <laughs> no, no, four years, four years in it. Oh, okay. It wasn't quite <laughs> so, it wasn't quite so dry. I thought, crikey. No, no, no. That was yeah. an interesting and, one. And actually, in the third year, you do field work. So I did kind of miss what would have been the best bit of it, which is going in the field. But by then, I also just thought I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I just thought I wanted to do music and I couldn't do music. So because of that, I just um, like I, I said to the my my lecturer, he said, what do you want to do for your field work? And I said, well, I'm really interested in the talking talking drums from Ghana. Mm. they communicate use you know with with this drum that where you change the tone and he said to me you've been watching too many tarzan films andy <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and i thought okay this is it i've got i've got to stop this <laughs> i don't know if he was right or not but i just thought 
fuck this, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> yes, I can't remember who it was, but it was the uh, the drummer from The Grateful Dead who was particularly keen on a lot of those kind of rhythms, oh, yeah. wasn't he? I believe. Anyway, that's the truth. So then, when did when did you start to sort of get into the studio with the band? I mean, this is often a big step for any any band to try yeah. and sort of capture their sound because obviously this is when it gets a bit more serious. Yeah, that happened actually quite early because Wilf, the drummer, had a friend in Cambridge who had a studio, a really great studio. So we went down there really early, like we'd, we'd hardly made a live set yet and recorded a bunch of stuff and, and released a single quite quick. Oh my God, was that Space After Ward? Early... Sorry? Was that Space Ward Studios in Cambridge? No, it's called, I can't remember what it was called. Maybe it's on here. I'm just looking at one of the records. Yeah, listen, to, look at the records. If in doubt, just look at the records. <laughs> I can't remember what it's called. Wilf's really good at this. David, it's a, it was called Macca Studios by a guy called Davy Graham. And um, we recorded eight songs there and three were good. <laughs> And we put them on a on a seven inch single. Blimey, that's good. And when did John? I was going to say, when did John Peel pick up on the band? Well, well, we sent that single to, immediately. We sent it to John Peel, and he played it, and we we went we went crazy. For us, that was just like we were super excited. And he he also laughed because the labels were put on back to front. So that, and he mentioned that, and um. And he gave us a session. <laughs> the famous John Peel session, which is yeah. always like, you've made it then, haven't you, really? Let's exactly. face it. But that's what was so great about the, all that music that we were playing. is that all those bands were played by John Peel, which was BBC National Radio. And you, you got a bit of money from that, and it kind of gave you a little, you know, it didn't make you famous, but it gave you a little step. You could get gigs a bit easier after that. And you'd sell a few singles. You still, I mean, you still did. We sold a, th a thousand of this single. Yes. Single. And actually, with the thing is, and, and what I've realized with that period and probably into the 90s, is that there were the kind of the gatekeepers. We had sort of, you know, three weekly music papers, didn't we? Enemy, Melody Maker, Science, which had huge circulations. The John Peel show. And there was also people like Janice Long and Kid Jensen. And also every, every, town city especially you know small town would have an alternative indie night of some description or something kind of you know on a monday tuesday or wednesday when no one else wanted to sort of book it so there was kind of ability to just kind of start you know playing in front of people who weren't just any of your you know friends and family and anybody else you can yeah. blackmail emotionally blackmail to go and see you so <laughs> there was it was you know it was quite important those little key steps otherwise you're not getting out of the rehearsals are you and bickering about i don't know stuff yeah i mean there you that's what you get it we always thought that was that you have a massive massive learning curve from your first gig if you make a new set still even now like isn't when we're rehearsing we make 10 songs and you try it out at the first gig and, and you go back into the back to the you know back into the um, rehearsal room and you just shift them and adjust them because you learn so much from playing playing it live you you learn how it works with the audience and how it feels to play it as well yes this is true yeah, this I is mean, what happened to the beatles i mean they're, they're sort of oh, apprenticeship yeah. well the cabin club and in hamburg they they yeah, do yeah. all those oh, yeah. live gigs and yeah. you know that all adds up doesn't it and and yeah. even more bizarrely i did an interview with the guitarist with twisted sister i didn't like mm -hmm. the man but I, he's done a book and he's a really engaging guy but he 
he spent 10, they spent 10 years just playing every night because actually they couldn't get a record label. But they, they said, you know, it really did, does make you a good musician and it makes you realise how you, you know, what songs are going to work or what songs aren't going to work. And, you know, it's your, it's the kind of apprenticeship. And until you've got that under your belt, you're not really able to, to know what's going to, what's going to come off or not. Yeah, I saw I saw a gig that we did after a 40, 40 dates playing in the States, and it was like maybe the 38th gig. I saw it on YouTube not long ago, and I thought we must have been knackered by them. But we were like playing great because we'd been playing, we'd played, 30, we'd played that set 38 times in 38 days, and it was so tight. And actually, I'm not so interested in music being really tight. In the end, it's not the music I listen to. I actually like music that's played... It can be played quite sloppy. It has to have something else than that. But it was quite funny to see how I really thought that we we would have played really badly after thirty eight gigs because we were playing the same songs. But actually, it was just it was quite an eye opener. I was amazed that we could play so so well, and, so, and we were actually playing faster and faster just to make it. Because I get I don't know after playing that many times in a row, you think okay, I've got to play this song again. So we make it interesting by playing it faster. <laughs> <laughs> so it got ridiculously fast at a certain point. But well, it, was, it does impress the crowd. And did your guitar playing style, did that change much over that period? I was really influenced by um, the uh, Gang of Four and Captain Beefheart. When I saw Greg from Big Flame, that really blew my brains. I just thought. And then when I saw Thurston playing from Sonic Youth, we went through, with the Finney tribe actually, we went through to um, Glasgow to watch them. And I think it was when, when Evol just came out. Yes. And I, and I, I didn't know Son, what Sonic, how Sonic Youth played. I just heard the records and I thought it sounded great, but I didn't. And I saw Thurston putting drumsticks in and bashing it with another drum. And I just thought, oh, you're allowed to do that with your guitar. <laughs> so after that, um, I started messing about, also putting things in my guitar, sort of. And uh, yeah, so that was a big change. And then, um, you know, Dun you, you said you interviewed Dunstan once. Yes. Dunstan from Chumbawamba. One time we didn't have, a, our van was broken down, so Dunstan came up with a Chumbawamba van because he would drive bands around to earn some extra money. And he drove us on tour and he said, have you ever seen the X play? And we said, no, no. And he says, because Andy, you play... Like you're like a mirror image of Terry playing, but I'd never seen him play. And then when I saw them and saw Terry playing, I was just, that was, I just thought, whoa, it was a whole other, it was, I was kind of shocked also. And it wasn't this brilliant technical, you know, there was not fiddling about loads of notes. There was just a kind of commitment and an energy and a really simple, direct sound that just, um, actually it, simpl it made me simplify how I play. I just thought, this is so much more effective because you know it's, there's no point playing 57 notes you may as well just give it you know you have to sort of give a shape and a sound and a sort of dynamic and a tension and an energy and the the x seemed to be so good at that so that was yes. a big moment for me and yeah. then i got to join them <laughs> and then you, yes i know i got like, to join my favorite band which was quite amazing yeah well it was quite quite boggling really but then I mean did you were you slightly because I know that you know that I don't know every decade has a bit of a twiddly you know there's always a few twiddly guitarists who kind of show sure. their you know experience on the fretboard but there were also people like I suppose the you know Edge from from you too did he stuck to you know it felt like and Neil Young as well at times you know they made very solid sort of um 
yeah i suppose rhythmic soundscapes really with their guitar which was you know very yeah solid yeah it, it wasn't fancy was it i i, I kind of like the edges guitar player i have a problem with uh, bono <laughs> so i can't <laughs> listen to you too because i can't stand his voice and i can't stand his lyrics especially the feed the world the where he says in Africa, where rivers never flow and trees never grow, I cannot stand him. <laughs> so I I couldn't listen to YouTube, but I really like the guitar playing in in YouTube. Yeah, you'll have to just it. somehow be able to. And take he had them. a bit of an African guitar influence as well. He must have listened to some African music, sort of from Zimbabwe. This kind of he played these really simple sort of circular melodies in some tracks, which I thought were great. Well, I must admit, there was the, I think it was Zimbabwe that the, the Bundy boys and the Four Brothers came from. And I really yeah. liked that guitar. That was just Fantastic. such a, you know, and the, and the rhythm and, the, and the, the bass. But I just, I, it was the guitar which was just really, I think his name was Biggie something, but it was just amazing. It was, you yeah. know, the, those nights seeing those bands was just amazing. So, um, yeah, good old John Peel. Yeah. And it was kind of yeah, also, it was quite yeah, an education was around Africa as well, because then, you know, you had a very different sound, North Africa. And I remember he played a band called yeah. Dissidentum, who were partly yeah, I remember them. Arabic and partly from Berlin, yeah, yeah. I believe. And it was just, again, you know, were just stunning. But I find it fascinating, go, oh, you know, and um, Senegal as well, there was a different sound. And yeah, so it was good. And then we got Graceland by Paul Simon. So what the hell? I hated that record too, <laughs> but I really loved the Soweto music. There was some really great um, Soweto music from South Africa, like the the kind of early Soweto music. Um, the Earthworks, this label Earthworks, put yes, incredible compilation where you had distorted bass and uh, and really sort of a sharp, sort of quite punky sounding guitars and like them hitting bottles or something. There was another record that actually that influenced me a lot. Um, I don't know what happened to it. It doesn't. It doesn't. It wasn't even. It doesn't seem to have been reissued or anything. It's, um, but that stuff was really great. Yeah, also there was Fela also Kuti. What's up? Fela Kuti. Fela Kuti. Yeah, yeah, there was amazing. there was Fela Kuti. But there was also the Stearns record label as yeah. well, which was very yeah. useful. And then a bit later was Real World. But I did really like the Stearns because there was an, another woman, I don't know where she was from, called Mbelia Bell or something like that. And I, yeah. we went down to London to see her. And again, it was just one of those evenings that was just transcendental because she was like this amazing vocalist but again again a band and also the atmosphere of the crowd I mean it was just everyone was there was just you know I was in the minority and um, but everyone was just so danceable you know just really enjoying themselves it was just a really magical evening probably one of my favorite gigs there you go you can't help but like those moments can you but then and there was also there was a what was that John Peel oh, Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan and all those sort oh of wow odd. yeah he was great I mean, that, that was yeah. another kind of education that kind of made you think, oh, okay, I better go and get some more records. And again, that reminds you know. Me of this, that it reminds me of this uh, TV series that came out on Channel 4 by Derek Bailey uh, in, about improvisation. He made like a four, was it a four or six part documentary called Improvisation on the Edge? And he just went from country to country all over the world, sort of, showing different styles of improvisation. I think Nusra Fateh Ali Khan is in that, but also um, music in Africa, 
um, in Kenya. Some there was even a, a, a funeral music in Kenya that was wild, like really completely wild, because the idea is that when somebody dies, that you really party and you really have a great time. You don't sort of hang around being miserable about it. And that had that also had a big influence. But that was later in the nineties when we started daring to improvise a bit more on stage. Yes. That... Before that, we were really playing the songs and there were bits that sort of changed and stuff. But there was a certain point. Actually, it was with Terry from The X. Um, it was a, we had a period when uh, our drummer, Kat, was having a child. So we started doing duo gigs together. And at first we said, oh, what are we going to do? We, should we make songs? And we, and we decided, no, let's just go on stage without any plan and just play. And it was really fun. <laughs> it was a complete <laughs> mess. It was total chaos, but it was so much fun just just to dare to do it. Like, and people liked it. I mean, some yes. people hated it. Some people hated it. They just, they just said, "You're just making it up. You're just you're going along." And we said, "Yes, <laughs> that's the, the idea." And it was it was such good fun. Yes. So then, your was your first kind of album album, um, Everyday Tom 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 Boy, Time Bomb. Was this the first time the band? Oh. The, the, the first LP was Humans Fly. Humans Fly, there you go. Yeah. My chronological. Humans Fly. And, but what we did is we made a kind of CD that was Humans Fly Everyday Time Bomb where we combined it because they were both mini LPs, the first two LPs. Um, so the, fir the first official LP was a mini LP called Humans Fly, which was recorded by John Vick from the Finney tribe. Okay, so that was... That so was recorded that came out. Yeah. Yes. And at that stage, because it was kind of, I mean, you might not have been influenced by it, but um, there was a sort of, I suppose with the 80s, you know, there was like the 83 to 87 period. Okay, that was the Smiths. But there was a real indie pop world. And then they broke up and then there was this kind of ecstasy moment came in. And then sort of music started to change again with, yeah. you know, like the fashion of being, you know, Happy Mondays, Primal Scream, Stone Roses. And then there's sort of the, the sort of the Seattle grunge scene came in. So I just wondered yeah. how a band like yourself was just kind of navigating these kind of vague fashions. I know in, in London, you had that North London scene with, you know, My Bloody Valentine and yeah, yeah. the Faith Healers and Sonic, um, Silverfish and people like that. You know, I think what happened with, Do with Dogface Hermes, we moved over to Holland in 1990 or 91 just when all that stuff started happening in the UK. And we were in a kind of bubble over there. We kind of, firstly, we, we sort of were operating in the squat suit in Amsterdam. And we started touring much more in Europe. We came back to England to play. But we kind of missed that whole, the whole, that whole thing that you're talking about. And also, I mean, we were aware that it was happening. And also the Amer all the American bands started coming over and they were, 10 times more people were coming to the gigs when these American bands would play than when we played. But, I mean, that didn't bother us, but we were just fascinated by that because it was kind of similar in what we were doing in a way. Um, so we just played all over Europe for like four years, Dogface Hermans, and in the States, um, just trying to survive. We just, we were trying to survive. We were living from our music then. We didn't have the dole anymore. So we were um, just... We weren't really thinking about scenes and we didn't really care about, um, you know, it wasn't like we were trying to be part of that scene or something. We were just making our music and somehow it was working. 
Yes. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how we... <laughs> We, you know, we we toured a bit with some of those bands. We played a few times with Fugazi and stuff, but and that was really nice. I mean, lovely people also. But and we played with the X also, but we never really felt part of a scene. And what was after, it? After and we you, left. England. So were you part of the anarcho punk kind of anarchist? I don't think squad. we were. I, we people. We were. We were put in that in that kind of. Um, pigeonhole or whatever you want to call it but i don't think we were part of that we played in squats we played um we didn't play anarcho-punk at all no you don't sound we like it a at bit all. of scar there's a bit of scar in our music. it was more scar punk than anarcho-punk do you think you would have done better in new york as a band because they they did have and i did do an interview with a, one of these kind of guys who ran a studio with bill laswell and brian eno at one stage started it in the early 80s and he's still doing it today and that that kind of um, new york kind of soundscape is a lot looser yeah. isn't it it's a lot more yeah. kind of varied and you know like like you're saying that that label that james chance and the contortions are on which i now can't remember the label's name but um yeah. but they were very yeah. eclectic and there was an awful lot of other bands like ut ut um, yeah we played with ut, ut, ut as well in a way, I know what you mean. Yeah, and Sonic, I, I think Sonic Youth um, was kind of influential on us, but we, we didn't really play with them at all with Dogface ever. Um, we played with them with EX later. But um, who else? Big Black, This that that, that was quite uh, important for us. But we, I don't know, we were also listening to tons of uh, jazz and improvised music, and I, I think we were listening more to, and, and we didn't listen, I just, listen to less and less guitar music and start listening more to African music and rhythmic music, Greek music, Hungarian music. I didn't really care about um, scenes. It's it's what you said. It's like you listen to an LP and usually you like about two or three songs on it. Um, so I, I was never, I never collected LPs. I, I collected songs. I was always listening, looking up songs. A song, yes. One song that had a really big influence on me was by, um, um, the cravats called Daddy's Shoes, which was like made in 1982 or something. And it was just one song. I like the cravats. I thought they were great. But that, that one song really um, shifted my my brain as far as making songs and how to make songs and something. And that always happened. It, it always tended to be a song rather than a whole like genre of music or or a whole band's back catalogue or something. I can't think of a band where like a... Except the fall, maybe. <laughs> they just made so much incredible stuff in the first 20 years, especially. Yes. And obviously, because we were sort of all very sort of angsty in the 80s and there was some yeah. horrendous disasters. The the one in India, Bhopal. Do you actually, you actually wrote a song on this, didn't you? So you, yeah. You, yeah. you didn't quite go full Bono, but um, was it quite difficult to to write a song on such a tragic kind of, you know... Uh, accident mismanagement well, I'll tell you how we write songs that it doesn't work like that no one came into the rehearsal room and said hey let's write a song about Bhopal it didn't work like that <laughs> what happens is we usually go into the rehearsal room and improvise record and listen and think oh that stuff sounds really shit that's not bad that's really good let's keep the good bit and then from that good bit we build something and Marion comes along with vocals at a certain point and it for the first couple of weeks we don't even know what she's singing about 
And then at a certain point, it's clear that she has some lyrics. And we say, what's that about, Marion? And she said, oh, it's about Bhopal. So it happens a bit like that. So, and then the song was already kind of made. But no, it, once, once you know what the, the song is about, what the words are about, it definitely changes how, how you play it. Right. And that's, that's great. I mean, for me, that's still the best way to make music, where you don't exactly know what the hell you're doing. And it kind of falls a bit into place by sort of osmosis and diffusion and a bit clumsily rather than really, you know, trying to, trying to construct songs or something. Yes. I've never like that. And what, and, and, you know, with the lifespan of most bands, they, they, there is a sort of a five-year period of, you know, the 12-month yeah. honeymoon, the single John Peel played, John <laughs> Peel single, first album, and then the second, slightly third album. And, you know, there, there aren't many ah! that, that survive beyond that kind of yeah. that, that great period. So you, you've, yeah. Um, yeah, so with, with the, the, the Hermans, did that sort of have a similar narrative on that? No, I think uh, what happened is Marion, well, we were, we, we were living in, in Holland, so nobody was living in their home, home place anymore, as in England or Scotland. Um, our reason for being there was the band. So that's quite, that's quite an odd kind of pressure that you have then. It's, like, it's not like, oh, you, you know, your family's there and stuff. So actually, we were, we were kind of refugees playing our music and surviving in Holland and it worked better there for us um, but at a certain point Marion who's a visual artist really wanted to do visual art and she couldn't she realized she couldn't do that in Holland it wasn't working for her and she had to go back to England to do that yes so that, so that was one of the big reasons why we stopped it wasn't like we thought oh this is shit now we don't like it anymore it, it really it really came from more from people wanting to do other things. Um, and I was playing in the X already a bit at that point. So I nearly died of exhaustion. Yes. I, was trying, I was trying to play in two bands who were both working full time at the same moment. So it was kind of exhausting. So, yeah, it, we kind of stopped at a, a, a creative, for me, a creative high point. We, and we weren't finished by any means. Um, but we decided to stop and we all had stuff to do. So everyone just started doing other stuff. It wasn't yes. So when you went to record, was the last album, Those Deep Buds? Yeah. So this was, was did, the, did you know that was going to be the last kind of album by the band? I can't remember. <laughs> Probably, yeah. That's very possible. I'm really bad at remembering that kind of stuff. I think it's either... I, no, I I really can't remember. No, but you recorded that in Rochdale, didn't you? Yeah, we Week recorded it, in this, and that was recommended to us by uh, the X because they'd recorded Oral Gorilla there, which for me is one of really one of the best X sounding records. Um, and John Robert recommended that place, and this guy Guy Fixon, um, who we met in London once, he just said, "I've listened to all your records, and you just haven't, and I've seen you live, and you haven't managed." to get your sound that you have live. You haven't managed to get that on record yet. I want to do it. I want to try. And we thought, <laughs> okay, great, great. Go for it. And I thought you did a good job. How long did the sort of session go for? A week, maybe less. I don't know. We, we, we record stuff fast. We usually re like record all the backing trucks, tracks in three or four days and then mix at the same time. 
for another two or three days. And there we go. And when you heard it, were you pleased? Yes. <laughs> you got it. It was good. We were happy. Yes. Yeah. So then the X, who were this, you know, famous, fabulously famous band in Holland, in Scotland, making lots of sort of... Scotland, from Scotland to Scotland. Scotland. I know this. It has, it's, a, it's a rock and roll lifestyle. So how did that feel, sort of fitted into a, a, an established band? Uh, it could have been awful, but because the way they made music was almost identical, just the, the process of how they made music was almost the, exactly the same as how we did it in Dogface Hermans. It wasn't, um, I was super a uh, bit starstruck when I first joined, uh, so I was a bit nervous and I'm in the X. But um, uh, once we started rehearsing together, I thought, oh, this is this is how we, we, we've been doing it for the last five, six years. So that that felt like such a natural organic process for me that i didn't feel um kind of overwhelmed uh, and i you know it's also age when you're i was 28 i think when i moved to holland so it was just totally exciting to be in in this amsterdam squat scene playing in my favorite band and touring like and really playing to like three times as many people as i was used to which was great Yes, I would imagine it was it was quite quite something, you know. It's yeah, some, exciting. And also, I guess at that stage, when with a band like the X, is it the case that you just can sort of completely focus much more on what you want to do? You're not influenced particularly by record companies or fashion or any sort of yeah. um, media pressure. Thinking, oh my god, if we don't make it now, we're never going to make it. Well, we have. I, yeah, the thing is, we had the same attitude with Dogface, which is also why we didn't make it. We we weren't driven to 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 um, make it at all. We just kept putting our records out and selling the amount that we did and surviving from it. And we just thought that was the way to do it. We didn't expect any more than that. And we weren't going to work with a major label. Label. We were all clear about that. We just we were never offered to work with a major label. So I mean, why would they? But, yes. Um, um, so the ex, in that sense, the ex had the same kind of politics as well, and they were probably more organised. And in general, in Holland, the, the sort of level of organisation, especially in the squat scene, was quite amazing. And you could do everything. If you had a van, you fix it yourself. If you have, if you need a rehearsal space, you build it yourself. And that was that was really um, quite a revelation for me. Yes, and, God, you wouldn't get that in England, not with political people in the 80s. <laughs> well, we you, just, you, maybe we, not then. Now, I think you do now, but I think at that time it was, that wasn't... Though we actually did that a bit in Scotland because we had to build our own rehearsal room in Scotland, in, um, in Edinburgh. So we, when we were first rehearsing with Dolphus Hermans, you know Jimmy Boyle? Yes. In Glasgow. He set up a place in Edinburgh called the Gateway Exchange. And he gave us a space, a wash house next to the Gateway Exchange. And he said, go down there and dig a hole and build a rehearsal space for yourself. And we did that and we sort of created a musician's collective for all the bands in, in the area. The Gateway was like a place where people that had been in prison or heroin addicts would go to as a sort of halfway house between leaving prison and going back into society. And they would go there and you'd have these big sort of open sessions where people would talk about their time in prison and stuff. So it was quite an amazing place to be in. God, um, that sounds like a lot. music there. 
Yes, I, I would imagine it had a certain a certain vibe on it as well. I don't, you... I don't know where I don't know where uh, where, where Jimmy Boyle is now. I, I, I've kind of, we've kind of lost track of him. Yes. Did you ever play in that sort of? Is it Christiana um, in? Is it Denmark? This kind of in, yeah, um, Copenhagen. Copenhagen. Did you ever play yeah. there? Played there a few times with different with different uh, bands and and things. Um, yeah, it was all right. I, I don't know. It wasn't like, I mean, <laughs> but I think by the time we played there, by the time I played there, it's it had a bit of a kind of weed smoking sort of Rasta vibe. Right. Um, it was all right, but I didn't find it this kind of sort of hard edged place or something. It didn't seem. I don't know. The, yes. Were you, I mean, because obviously a lot of bands, especially from the UK, who had ticked into that box, were all getting very, you know, political and they wouldn't do an interview without main, saying the word anarchy quite a few times. I mean, did you, did you sort of balance that kind of side of your personality or did you sort of just have a healthy scepticism about everything? <laughs> I think I, I was arrogantly skeptical about everything. <laughs> I was a bit nihilistic. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm more open-minded about things now. But I think it was also really healthy to do that. We just resisted. We resisted anything corporate and anything that was that would be trying to control what we're doing. And we wanted to have total control of every aspect of our of our musical life. And that's a that takes a lot of work, <laughs> like fixing yes. your own van. Sometimes we were fixing the van the day before touring, so we couldn't rehearse. Or and and your hands are freezing, and you can't rehearse because you you have to fix the van. So that maybe even the music sometimes paid the price because we wanted to do everything ourselves. And I think yes. that's great that we did that then, and we had the energy to do that. At a certain point, we figured out maybe it's better to take the van to a garage and get it fixed. But that was later when we could. Um, we we got a bit more from gigs. We got a bit more money from gigs, so we could afford to pay. Yes, pay that. I mean, we did it from necessity as well. We just uh... so yeah, we we were never looking uh, for a label to help us with that or give us an advance. So we we decided we have to do it by ourselves, and that was a kind of um, stubborn way that we just assumed that's how you do it. That's it, and that, that 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 right from the start we had that it didn't kind of change. Yes, <laughs> and it still hasn't changed. <laughs> But there wasn't, um, but didn't, I mean, with a lot of those punky anarchist bands, there was a, there was like, I could never tell if they were really that genuine about it or whether there was a bit of a fashion badge in, you know, I mean, it, it, I just found it a little bit, I'm not very good when anybody kind of pushes an agenda too much, you know, yeah, I yeah, find I myself just going, yeah. well, can I just yeah. stand slightly just behind you so when we go to that, protest you you're just right there in front of me and you haven't just scarfed around the back you know and it's yeah and I'm, I'm sort of getting bashed by the police you know the, there was just a lot of that going on and I even sort of I don't know I, I suppose even bands like Crass were sometimes I just you know I know Penny Rambo you know is quite a genuine person on that front but there was an element where the, the you know everyone has to look has to have a certain look everyone has to have a certain style everyone's got the haircut it's almost like we're all individual but actually you know, you can guess the members of the band if you had a sort of a group of 100 people because there was like, oh, yeah, you all look like members of Crass, don't you? You know, or... Yeah, I know. I know the scene you're talking and I know that I know what you're talking about. 
I don't know. I didn't feel like we were, we were we were part of that at all. And also, when I saw the X for the first time in a pub in Sheffield, I thought they were the roadies when they came on. I had the same thing with the three Johns because they I I expected them to be dressed up with Mohicans and black leather jackets, and they came on dressed in kind of normal clothes, and they started moving the gear about, and I thought they were setting up the setting up the gear for the band to play, and then they started playing, and I thought, oh, this is the band. <laughs> so. And I thought with a lot, I was I said that in my this last show. I thought a lot of the bands that we played with in in the eighties, they they were like really normal looking people that played really abnormal music, and there was a lot of really really shit music played by very abnormal looking people as well. So I don't know. You, I guess you choose. I mean, for me, the reason for being in a band was to play music. It was really to do with music. It wasn't to do with a look, or anything else and that's maybe why we're still doing it because we were we really wanted to play music and that's why we hadn't we, we didn't earn any money from it it wasn't it didn't come from a kind of we want to get rich or and of course there was a political side to it and we were part of that political scene but we were, I, I didn't feel like we were this kind of flag waving um fuck the system thing that marion's lyrics were never um in that direction she was much more kind of subtle or something i don't know she was talking about all sorts of things and she was also political but it it wasn't uh, in your face the way you're described but i know what you mean there was a lot of that that's why i don't really think the x or dollface were an anarcho-punk band even though whenever you see it written anywhere they're described as anarcho-punk the x put out a, a a double single in 1986 of the spanish civil war and I think that also gave them a bit this label of anarcho-punk because it's it's about the anarchists and it's it was quite punky, so they got kind of put in that. But I never yes. thought of the X as a, as anarcho-punk at all. It's when I, when I think of Cat, the drummer, the way she plays drums in this kind of African pattern system, and the way Terry plays guitar. I mean, he, he, of course, he was inspired by punk and that, but. For me, they were that was the beginning of something that then they took and they made their own, they made their own sound and their own world, and that, mm. that's the same. With the, the, all these bands that some of the bands that, like the Membranes, they still play, and they came out of this punk scene, but they they just make their own music now with their own sounds, and they're still playing because they love to play. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So, what was well, the first know. on the first studio album with the X? Was this the one Mud Mudbird? Was that your first? No, I played on. Yeah. No, the first one I played on is with Tom Cora. It's called Scrabbling at the Lock. Scrabbling at the Lock. Yeah, and Tom Cora was a cello player, a New York cello player. And just as just as I joined the X, he he also appeared, and we invited him. He, we invited him to. We did a couple of LPs with him. Right. I've got you. And we did a series. We did a series of six, seven-inch singles as well. One with Hungarian folk music. One with Kurdish music. One with um, improvised jazz music. One with hip hop. We tried it. We did all these different styles. But that never really came out on a CD. That's just came out as seven-inch singles. So it's a bit of a collector's thing. We have to put it out on a CD at some point. So yes. Those are the first, the first two things that I did with the X. Uh, one was playing with Tom Cora and then this series of seven inch. Which was quite something, wasn't it? Yes. And then, I mean, how did you cope with, you know, with with a band that seems much more 
like the band are going to keep going regardless, you know, like with members coming and going, how does that kind of influence the kind of the, I was going to say energy of a band, you know, just being able to sort of cope with somebody leaving, especially, yeah. you know, some of the main characters who, who've been there from the start. Yeah, I, I hadn't experienced that before. That's true. That's an interesting question because with Dogface Hermes, we all started together and we stopped together and we had no other members in between. With the X, there has been people passing through. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I think um, Kat and Terry were really there from the moment I joined the X and they, and they were there, there, they were there up until just before COVID still. So for me, that was really the core um, two musicians that I'd been playing with for 30 years. Um, and that hadn't changed or hasn't changed. Um, and then other music that we had, we had a, two new singers. And um, I think the drums are really important for this because the rhythm, especially because we put the, of the way we play music is really, it comes from the rhythm. I think... If, if the drummer had changed, I think that would have been much more of a challenge for me to continue. And also if Terry had left, because Terry, for me, Terry really, he was there from the very beginning. And his the way he plays guitar, really, when I first saw the X, that was the thing that caught me first. I thought, this is great. I'd love to play with this guy. So the fact that those two members stayed for so long is probably part of the reason why I also stayed so long is because I... I think they're just they're just both incredible to play with. Yes, um, but it, it's definitely true. Also, psychically, when when a band member leaves, the balance just changes immediately. It's really um, when Luke left the band, that was really really difficult because he was he was, he was really one of my favorite bass players and a fantastic bass player, and that was really a challenge at first. I just thought, whoa, how how are we going to um, adjust to that? It's really like a kind of weird dysfunctional family and suddenly somebody leaves <laughs> so yeah no it's it, that's funny that's an interesting question yes um, and now i don't know what we're doing <laughs> we're waiting <laughs> but when you let when you you know when joss left who would who you know who would be in the yeah yeah no i mean this the front almost the front man i know almost. yeah that, how did that, that was, what what was that kind of experience like really difficult at first yeah uh for me especially because i was probably i mean jos wanted to leave at a certain point but i i found that really difficult because i i love i love the way jos um performed it, and it, you know he's not a singer at all he's he's hardly musical that that's not what he was trying to do he's a, he's more like a declaimer he just he just rants and shouts and occasionally sings a melody or a line but that's not really his intention um, it would, it's almost a bit like if Mark Smith had left the fall. Yes. That, that, so at first, our first thought was, well, why don't we just do, uh, do a kind of instrumental version? And then we just thought, nah, <laughs> that's not going to work. So we started looking for a singer and we, we found someone that, that we liked. We knew, we knew his, his stuff for Arnold. We knew his stuff from, you know, from his other bands and we just tried it. And that's all you can do. I mean, playing in a band is a continuous experiment. You try things out and either it works or it doesn't work. And it worked. Yes. We had no idea. I mean, so I think probably some people thought, nah, 
you can't have the X without Yoss. So then they didn't come anymore. But new people came, and we had a new audience as well. And also sometimes a younger audience came, which was fun. Yes. Um, well, it's, yeah. kind of, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I often wonder, you know, the... I don't know the legacy of a band. How do you do yeah, it as yeah, one? Because it's because it's almost like, you know, is this going to possibly be a bit different with the X? But you know, there was the the cover bands, weren't there, that started. And when the first few cover bands started, it felt a bit weird. But now we're starting to accept the cover bands, ish. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's possibly better than nothing. You know, and <laughs> but then I don't know. Perhaps it is. I don't know. It's a bit tricky. Um, but then you know, like we listen to classical music that's you know hundreds of years old, and we're kind of happy with that. So how do how do one keep that? You know, do you write the musical of you know the Dogface Hermans and the X? You know, I don't know. Britpop the musical. I don't. You know, it's kind of tricky, isn't it? Do you make a, a stage play of it, or do you do sort of improvised dance to capture that yeah, moment? I think- I think we don't. Anyway, we don't. Um, we never play the old songs. We're, we've forgotten them. And um, like when when we go on tour, we always play a new set, mostly that the audience hasn't heard because they've only heard the old records, and we we haven't recorded the new stuff yet. Do so you find that easier as a band? Because you think, Christ, I just have no idea how we used to play the old songs either. So it's just going to be a nightmare. Let's just stick with what we're playing at the moment because at least we know them. Well, it's just it's just a uh, songs have a life, and and there's a certain point where you just think I don't want to play this anymore. Uh, even when people shout, "Oh, play State of Shock" or something, you just don't feel like playing it anymore. So we don't. We're not going. I know. I know. Rob Lloyd not... of the of the Nightingales. They he just sticks with his kind of latest albums. And, yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, we we that 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 makes. I mean, for me, that always and you always want you always feel like this is our best stuff. That's and that's a bit of a cliche where you say, "Oh, this is a, the the best song," but if you don't have that feeling, then then you should stop. Mm-hmm. Then you shouldn't be playing if you don't feel it. But, but the actually, on the with the nighting, I think with the nightingales and actually the membranes, I think their latter stuff is probably better because especially the night the membranes. I always thought the production was a bit not that great on their early stuff. Actually, I always thought it sounded except a bit... spaceships. That sounds amazing. <laughs> you listen to that song. I don't know how they did it, but it, the the bass sound on that is incredible. But the thing is, I I really think if you don't, if you do, if it doesn't matter what all the audience, which which period the audience like, the band has got to like what they're doing, and the band has got to like the new stuff. If they don't like the new stuff, and they they just start playing the old stuff all the time, it's a bit that's a bit sad, no? Yes, it is. I mean, it it's, doesn't really make sense. And um, with the X, it's the same. We we. we um, if we don't, if we when we go in the rehearsal space, we we haven't got any clue what's going to come out because nobody writes the songs. It's the same. We just we're making them on the spot. So if we don't come out with anything, then that's it. It's finished, and that's that hasn't happened so far. At least we don't think that we have to stop yet because we always come up with a set. Um, and it takes time. To, it takes time to to become good as well. And that's for me. That's fine. Yes, and so when you recorded "Catch My Shoe," which was the first album with the with Arnold, yeah, what was the what was it like the rehearsals for that and the practicing? You know, because obviously that was quite a, a, a different dynamic. Yeah, we had to get used to it, but I think because 
because the last period with Yoss, the old singer, it got a bit, it went a bit stale and a bit down. It was kind of exciting to have a new person there who had lots of ideas, lots of energy and really wanted to make new songs. And so that also helped, you know, that gave it a kind of fresh, and we had to, we, we had to adjust. But we were also used to playing with, we, I mean, we're improvising a lot, so with lots of different musicians. So we're used to playing with other musicians anyway. And get guests join the X all the time. So, in the beginning, maybe this felt a bit like we have a new guest, but it's he's a permanent guest, and and he became a permanent guest. Um, so for me, that's fine. It's like it wasn't it wasn't super difficult to work with. Also, because Arnold is such a he's such a social person. He's totally open, and he you know he, he's fun to be with, and that's actually as important as anything. So, yes, side of it because we've got to sit in a van together for 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 hours and hours every day. That's why that, bands split up because they go on three month tours and sit in a van with each other for three months. Who do you sit in a van with for three months? I know. <laughs> Normally, it's, it's, that's just you? it's just wrong, isn't it? I know. <laughs> and people and people don't don't you know? It's like read the room, just read the room. Let's let's yeah, say yeah. less. Let's let's not tell you tell me that story again. I, I, but I Arnold's don't. also playing in his own in his own has his own project, so he's also gets a lot of satisfaction from doing his project. We all Terry plays with other musicians. I play with other musicians, so we're all busy doing other stuff. So when we come together with the X, it's 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 not like ah, oh, it's the same old thing again. It, it always feels a bit um, fresh because we're not we're not doing it all the time. It's not like uh, three hundred gigs a year. It's like fifty gigs a year we were doing. Yes. And did Which you, is, um, during that period, you started working with an Ethiopian saxophone player, didn't you? Getachu, yeah. Yes, I wasn't going to pronounce wow. it. Um, and that must have been incredibly exciting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was great because he couldn't speak one word of English and we couldn't speak one word of Amharic. So when we went in the rehearsal space, we just basically used our kind of musical ears to work on the songs. I mean, all he knew how to say was, you solo, me solo, me solo, you solo, you solo, me solo. And um, somehow we managed to make a whole set um, with him. And we we were playing his songs, so it wasn't like we were writing new material or something. Or rather, we were playing his melodies, and then we would make in a kind of our own X-style arrangement of it. And it was great, because he didn't he doesn't know any of this music. They talk about him being the sort of missing link between Albert Ayler and John Coltrane, and whenever he hears that, he just laughs. He doesn't. He doesn't know that stuff. He doesn't know. He doesn't know any of that stuff. He basically played traditional Ethiopian music for sixty years, and when we met him, he was playing in a, in the Sheraton Hotel in Addis Ababa every night. Just kind of sad a bit, playing just playing his thing, and that's how he could earn a bit of money. So to go on tour with this punk band, he didn't know he didn't know what punk was, but he he just thought this is the he didn't think we were punk. He said this is X music, this is the X, and so we were his band, we were his, and not really even his backing band, just the, his band that um. It was kind of surreal. <laughs> I don't know how it worked, but it did. And he's and a did, stunning um, guy. And how did you and how did that collaboration sort of come about? How did that sort of meeting together because obviously you know it, it grew out of because me and terry had been listening uh 
to a lot of African music for like 10 years before or 20 years before. Um, and we discovered Ethiopian music and we liked that a lot. Like that really had a kind of big effect on us. And um, so we knew these uh, Ethiopian especially this Mahmoud Ahmed record called Eramela, which we listened to every day, like for two or three years. Terry went to Africa for a year and traveled around Africa in a Land Rover. And he ended up the last month in Ethiopia. And when he came back, he just, he, for him, that was the sort of the most incredible place he'd been. And then when we came back to, he came back to Amsterdam, we started going to Ethiopian restaurants and the owners of the restaurant said, you should go to Ethiopia and play your music there. Um, and we were like, really? You think people in Ethiopia would like the X? I mean, we were like, yeah, yeah, try. <laughs> sure. So we, we taught ourselves a few Ethiopian uh, songs from all this stuff that we knew. And we played a few of our own songs. And we, we somehow organized this crazy tour. We would arrive in a village or a town, go to the, the police station, get permission from the police to play some, and then we play outside somewhere for free. And hundreds of people would come and listen and when we played the ethiopian songs they were kind of laughing and just really enjoyed them. and when we played the x songs they loved it they were dancing and i thought we we would have to play a bit you know tone it down a bit but actually the more extreme stuff we played the more they enjoyed it so it started like that and then we met we met um Gitachu. you know this series of uh cds that came out called ethiopique there's about 30 or 35 volumes of them now mm. it's a guy called francis falsetto and he's been putting out um this this series of ethiopian music um mostly post haile selassie this period after haile selassie died before the communist era got in where they really had a kind of explosion of energy and it was really influenced by soul music from and james brown Right. And he's been releasing these. And Gitachu Mercuria, the saxophone player, was, was one of these um, releases. But actually, we did, me and Terry found his cassette in a cassette shop in Ethiopia because all the music then, when we were there, we were there beginning of 2000, all the music was sold on cassettes at that time. And when we heard Gitachu's music, we, we just thought, this is completely bizarre. It was like this saxophone. With an, it reminded me even of Nick Cave sometimes. It was this kind of organ playing in the background, one snare, and Gitachu playing these beautiful melodies on top. And we we managed to hook up with them. And then from that, it just sort of... Because we were going to Ethiopia regularly to right. play, and we managed to meet Gitachu. And um, so we started touring with him. God, that's an amazing adventure. Story. Yes. <laughs> It must have been hard to sort of after that project to go back to just what you would do, had been doing previously. Um, yeah, we had a, we had that we had a similar kind of experience of that with Tom Cora when we played with Tom Cora, this American cello player. We had we would play in these big jazz festivals and stuff, and it was really ah. And then we would go back to the four four piece or the five five piece playing a bit smaller places, but um. Yeah, it took a bit of adjustment, but you, you adjust. Yes. I mean, if no. you love playing music, it doesn't matter whether... I mean, of course it matters. If, you play, if you're play. you only playing to five people, you might think, OK, let's knock it on the head. But if, the, if you feel like there's enough people coming and they still love the music, whether it's a big project like that or whether it's the X... As, and to be honest, 
there's a, there's a group of people that like it the best when it's just the four of us. They you know they're quite purists and they just say we just like the guitars. We don't like all this fancy cello or so. They like a little of that. So for us it's for us it's fine to do both. Yes. Well, I think um, yeah. Yeah, yes, and it, think... was, it was very sad when when Gitachu died. That was quite a that was quite a shock for us. I mean, he was he was only eighty four. He wasn't so old, and he was built like an ox. It's like his shoulders were made of stone. So I just thought he was going to live forever. I did. I really had. No, I could. I just didn't imagine him as someone who could get ill. And then and it went very quick. Like he he sort of died very. He kind of got ill and then. Maybe he didn't get the right medicine or something. So yeah, because he had was it diabetes he had. Yeah, and he had gout also, which is from eating a lot of raw raw meat. Right. In Ethiopia, you, you eat um, raw meat a lot, so you get worms and gout. But it's, it's delicious, but you have to be a bit careful, I guess. Well, I, mean, I think yeah. I think they get sometimes that he just got the wrong medicine, and um, so he we didn't make it, which is very sad, but. That was a great experience. We also played in the States with him, which was really fun, in, a, oh. in Chicago, in this giant, what's this enormous place called? The Millennium Center or something. Really insanely big venue with guitars. <laughs> and was it, was, it an, was it a project, an album that toured well? Was it, was it one that the yeah. you know, audience kind of responded to positively? Totally, yeah. I mean, we played in uh, a lot of world music festivals. Yeah, if you want to call it world music, whatever you call, call it, especially in France, like really big f festivals. They loved, they loved, because there was, I mean, people started to know this Ethiopian music also because the guy who put it out is from France, so it was very well distributed in France. Um, so it went great. We played in jazz festivals, world music festivals, and rock festivals with guitars. We could pretty much play anywhere. It was really a spectacle. Yes. And, um, and there was 10 of us, I think. I think there was, it was quite a big band, or eight, eight or 10 of us. But, uh, plus uh, Malaku, who's a dancer who runs an amazing um, place in, in Addis Ababa, a kind of bar where they have traditional music. So it was really a, a spectacle. It felt like a circus. <laughs> that's amazing so when you yeah, sort of came fun. came home and then that project was finished and you were thinking right next album this is going to be <laughs> enormous doors did that feel quite hard to know how to pick up the baton again and well start? that was that was also with the with a um a brass section so that was nice that that was with four extra musicians um who were friends of ours um ken vandermark who's who's this great saxophone player from chicago um, Roy Pachi, I don't know if you know Roy Pachi, the legendary. He also Roy Pachi also plays on Catch My Shoe. He's a Sicilian trumpet player, and we met him actually twenty five, thirty years ago. He joined us. We had a we had an ex orchestra where we had a twenty piece orchestra, um, and there's a band called Zoo from Italy, who, who, have, who played very kind of jagged, uh, thrashy, punky, noise guitar. And he used to play the trumpet on top of that, really incredible uh, sort of sharp trumpet. So we mm. met him from that. But he, he later, he became a kind of st uh, a pop star in, in, in Italy. And he did, he did also chat shows and stuff, and he's quite a celebrity. 
So we didn't see him for like 15 years and then we invited him to join Brass Unbound and he was totally up for that. Um, yeah, so that was great. And uh, Walter Vierbos, who's from who's from Amsterdam and he's part of the Amsterdam... Amsterdam has an incredible um, scene of international uh, jazz improvised musicians who play all over the world. And they, they've, they've sort of... It's a lot of musicians who come to Amsterdam, and when you come to Amsterdam as a musician to work, you usually don't leave. Somehow, mm. you survive. The, especially twenty years ago, there was a big support here, so that musicians could actually get paid for what they do. So musicians have stayed. So we have a great scene of amazing players. So it, we were lucky in that sense to have someone like Volter, who's this, this incredible trombone player. So that was really fun, uh, and also. It was kind of running parallel with Gitachu for a while because Gitachu hadn't died when X Brassman first started. Yes. Um, did you? How did you find? How do you find? Um, just on that slight, yeah. you know, with with Amsterdam. How does that compare to you, you know your experiences of going to Berlin in in the sense of just very vibrant places with quite kind of amazing history, especially Berlin. Yeah, it's really different. Amsterdam's tiny. Amsterdam's like 700,000 people and there's about, you know, there's, there's a, there's a very high concentration of great musicians for such a small, a small populated city. That's for sure. I mean, if you think about the number of people who live in Chicago or New York or Berlin, it's, it's much bigger. Um, I don't know. I love Berlin. It's great. Um, and there's also a great, great scene of musicians there. Yes. Your question? <laughs> yeah, and I was, no, it was just that you were talking about that concentration, and I know that Berlin had a kind of a quite a energy when yeah. the Berlin Wall was up because obviously yeah. that was the place that you could go if you were German and wanted to um, avoid national service, wasn't it? So you yeah, got yeah. A, a certain yeah. a certain vibe, didn't you? And I just wondered, yeah. as you're sort of very European now, what it was like, you know, being in different cities and experiencing different cities. Yeah, we're always there for 24 hours. It's it's so weird. I mean, if you I've been to Berlin a few times and stayed for a bit if I've recorded, and then you have a, a, a very different experience. Um, when you're just passing through and you just you're playing for 24 hours, you it's it's I mean it's great. It's really exciting, but it's not how you get a a real um, impression of the city. Berlin's amazing. It's it's great. I'm going there soon, actually, to play. There's a great drummer there called Tony Buck. I'm going to play a couple of gigs with him. And we we also played with him for years. Um, an Australian drummer. He plays in a band called The Next. But um, there's it, there's so many musicians in Berlin, so many great musicians. It's true. And yeah, I don't know. It's, so what, what yeah. was this period? Exciting. The period for the band between Enormous Doors and 27 Passports? Because there's obviously quite a gap at this point yeah. in the band. What, yeah. what, was, what was happening then? I know you do quite a lot of solo projects, but what, did, what was the band's kind of general status at that stage? I think when, when Gitachu died, that really f uh, floored us for a bit. That was, it, it kind of took the wind out of our sails because none of us were really expecting it. Um, and I think we needed to recover from that. Um, so I think we first we took a bit of time off. I think we were partly a bit exhausted because we we done we just done these projects with him, and they were quite kind of we tra travelled a lot with him. 
so I think we took some time off and uh, and then w when we decided to come back together that's the thing that I like then then again we thought okay let's go small we don't we don't need to uh, again do another kind of because people said okay so which which African musician are you going to invite next to play with and we were like it doesn't work like that we didn't think oh no you know what who, who should we invite now we just thought what do we want to do and everyone wanted to make music a bit concentrated again and consolidate and again see if we can still do it it's always a, a question mark that you so that was and that took a long time yes <laughs> sure which um i mean that's also to do with age as you get older we get we get a bit slower and, and i i have children Arnold has got had children. Um, Terry's children have grown up, and Cat's children have grown up. But me and Arnold were late with kids, well, especially me. So that also took time. Um, my son is eight, and so th this period when we started working again, we just had to tour less, and it just took longer. It's just, and we didn't we we, we didn't feel this pressure to you know we just done this massive project with Gitachu. We didn't feel this um, thing that we had to you know go for it again we needed i think we needed a bit of time yes absolutely and and how does and how do you sort of keep everything ticking over just kind of life-wise you know do you have to have a sort of another side hustle to keep keep you know paying the rent no we're, uh, we're all playing in 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 well if the side hustle is probably all the little side projects that we do with other musicians i play, i have about four or five duos with different musicians so over a year i can do 20 or 30 gigs with them and um that pays the rent and then the the, the way we work with the ex is we pay ourselves a wage um every month and that's steady and right that we get just that we get from the income of the gigs from record sales because we sell all, because the label is our label all the money comes back to us so it's just enough i mean we, we live we live simply it's you know we live on the edge it's we don't have a buffer or anything if if the band stopped like in this covid period yes we stopped we couldn't pay ourselves at a certain point we, we couldn't pay this wage anymore and um it was tough like luckily the dutch government gave us a bit of money like to help us out but i realized we've been playing in this band for 40 years but if we don't play there's no money <laughs> immediately it's not like it's really hand to mouth and uh, that was quite a a thing i mean I, I, for me it wasn't a frustration but it was a realization i said that's you know that's we could we we could live for six months without doing anything and then then the pot was empty <laughs> so we, um, yes that's, yeah, quite, that's how it is that is that's quite, work. <laughs> it is yes well i i know lemmy from motorhead used to always have the same thing that you know you'd put the album do the tour have a couple of weeks off and do it again because that was the job yeah, yeah. you know it wasn't yeah, um, and also x x records don't it's not like a i mean it's we don't make our money from the records we make a bit but it's not if people want to spend 10 quid on the x they usually want to go to the gig and not buy the record and I think that's a good idea. Um, we don't have commercial sounding records, so we don't get a lot of radio play. We get a bit, but it's, you know, it's not like, um, you know, some bands uh, that probably have the same number of people coming to the gigs, but they sell more records. That's never really been the case with the X. Yes. 
also because we run the label ourselves and we don't have time to do a, a massive, uh, you know, if you want to really do it, you would need to work full time just on running the label and we can't do that. So it's this thing of trying to do everything. We're still yes. doing that. <laughs> but then at least you <laughs> haven't got one right. of those, at least you haven't got one of those stories, which, you know, a lot of people have where, you know, they never made a penny, they never saw a penny, but they would have thought someone must have done okay from this band. Yeah, it was funny hearing your interview with um, um, Dave Parsons, actually. Also, because he said that the two bands that he lost money from was the X and the Shrubs. <laughs> because every time he sold an X record, he lost a quid. And he sold tons of that of the single, 15,000 or something. And I just thought, wow, that's like, I mean, he, he really tried to, to um, put music out for all these bands, but... The, it's like he couldn't say no because he loved the music so much but you know as a sort of uh, business package it was not it was doomed to failure because uh, because none of the none of those bands were ever going to sell more than a thousand or two thousand records but they were amazing bands some of them yes what is that about that's just that's it's always been like that that is a bit much isn't it really so does that mean with um dear old dave uh Yes, I know there was. How some, is he? I think. <laughs> Do you have contact with him? Just on, you know, just occasionally, but nothing, you know, nothing He's beyond right, that really. But he seems okay, you know. Everyone has their story, don't they? So does that mean that you're um, <laughs> quite a lot of stories? Yeah. Dun have you seen Dunst's film? No, I want to see it. I saw Dunstan Dunst. not long ago, but I haven't seen his film. Yes, I want uh, to see Dunst. Dunst. Dunstan. Um, no, I haven't Dunst. seen it. Yeah. Yes. Is what happened? Well, I haven't seen it either, but it's all about what happens when the music stops. Oh, really? Have you have you seen the trailer? Yes, but I I, I didn't I couldn't totally get that from the trailer. But I, no, I want to see it. What what happens when when you're no longer on stage? I think that's the gist of it. You know, oh, dealing with the existential problems of no longer being in the band on the stage. I think searching in his soul for for the purpose so that's the opposite of the nightingales one <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that was such a heart heartwarming film to watch i just also i really loved the way stuart and um rob lloyd just giggled like two mates giggling it was i thought it was great it was a good yeah. format and I love, and also I love the fact that there's this little bit of a Duran Duran sort of kind of connection with, um, with that Birmingham scene. Because I, I recently did an interview with a, um, a musician who's put together a compilation of that very early Birmingham sound from 1978 to 1982. And, um, you know, with people like, I don't know, the guy from Stephen Duffy and people like that, they're very early bands and various other punky post-punky bands and you know John Taylor was kind of one of those bass players in in uh, a band who probably never even you know did an album just did a single so it's quite nice there's there's a few little connections like that and I totally forgot about we got a fuzz we've got a fuzz box yeah I totally forgot and Ted Chippington was also in that I remember seeing that <laughs> thinking what is going on when when Rob Lloyd was suddenly a pop star rocking with Rita yeah that was that was quite that was quite something actually I, I actually the most amazing thing because I that's from the interview was because there was a film about Danny Danny Fields who was this kind of yeah. 
funny little mover and shaker in America and New York, especially in Manage the Ramones. And there was this kind of clip about, you know, with Danny and, and the Nightingales. And I just thought that was fantastic. Yeah. You know, it was just, you know. And I love the fact when he was going around the back of that car place going, oh, yeah, I slept here a few nights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was great. It's, yes. it's true, right? <laughs> You have the feeling that, they, that he doesn't make anything up. <laughs> yes, it was, it was, no, it was a charming film. So then what's, what's the plan for the future after, you know, the last couple of years obviously went and looked at your archives in the attic and thought, should I make him write a book? Perhaps not yet. Um, perhaps I will. But then, you know, are you sort of planning any more releases in the next 12 months? With who? With the band or anybody? Or with the ex? Yes. I mean... Um, with the X, I don't know. We have to. We, we, we're back at the stage where we we, it ha, we have to go into the rehearsal room with a big question mark over our head, which is, which is my favourite bit in the process. So, when was, was the last time you saw each other in in that space? I oh, in the rehearsal space. Yes. Wow. Maybe uh, three and three years ago. Right. I mean, since COVID, we haven't. It's been a, just a blip that's gone. Um, Kat lives in Germany now, so it's a bit more complicated. Um, Arnold lives in Amsterdam. I see both of them regularly. We meet, there's an Ethiopian restaurant here, and we eat there regularly, so that's great. Um, and I sometimes do duo gigs with Terry, which is really fun. We still do that. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. M maybe I have to answer that in six months from now. Right. <laughs> I have no idea at the moment. We're in a kind of... Um, we're kind of treading water and waiting a bit. We really did, decided not to try and play during the COVID period, like try and play in places where people couldn't dance and just stand. We just thought that's not going to work with this band. Mm. Um, so anyway, we just said no to all that. So I've been doing some online gigs, uh, but more kind of experimental stuff where, you know, it works in, the, in that kind of space and playing with them. Um, I've been playing with this, Greek composer, Cypriot Greek composer called Yanis Kiriakidis. I've been playing with him for years, but in, uh, we did quite a few gigs during the lockdown because um, it, it sort of was seemed okay to play to a cameraman and a, and a sound and a sound guy. Um, but with the X, that just wouldn't have made any sense. That would have been yes. daft. So no, I don't know. Um, I'm I'm playing lots of music with different different musicians. Um, at the moment, just exper more experimental stuff, which I really love doing, and just doing small tours and making music at home with a computer and making this radio show. Yes. I'm just busy with music and not making any money from it. <laughs> Still. <laughs> <laughs> but just enough to survive and feed my children. Yeah, so, yeah, I know. I mean, do you feel, does that sort of fill you with a certain... and? Um, anxiety thinking about the X, whether you need to say, are we going to do it or aren't we? And if we're not going to do it, can we just say it and be done with it? Um, do I think we still don't really know what's going to happen. We don't know ourselves. I think we really need to, because we have had no contact, real contact, and like also not playing. If you don't play together, then the, the, the whole the whole thing doesn't exist. As long as you're not playing together, the band doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. Then it's just this thing that's uh, sort of 
people like to listen to uh, uh, on records or on Spotify, but we're not um we're not a band because we're not playing together. As soon as we're playing together, we're a band. Again. Yeah. Do you feel the other members of the band are also in that same emotional limbo? Yeah, probably. We're kind of wondering. We're wondering. We want to do something, but we're wondering how and what and where and when. And we're not in a hurry. Somehow we're not in a hurry. I think we decided to wait till the end of this year. Um, and everybody said that they had they have enough projects to do other projects to do that we can um, just get on with doing our other things. And that's quite nice because there's tons of things you want to do sometimes and you can't do them because yes. you're busy touring or something. So everyone's busy doing their stuff. And um, the plan is to sort of get back together at the end of the year, meet and see then what happens. That's what I mean. I'd probably be able to answer you better in six months. Yes. Well, and that's kind of a luxury position to be in that we can do it like that. That we're not under some pressure or, or we have to, it's got to come from, it's got to come from inside us. We've got to, there's got to be an urgency to go back in to the rehearsal room and, and make some songs. Yes. God, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, just lastly, I mean, if you could have said something to like your 16, 18-year-old self starting out, is there anything that you would have wanted to have said to them or felt like, you know, as much as people say, oh, they would have ignored me? You know, I just wonder if there was any little top tips that you would have thought that would have been quite useful. What, to a 16 or 18-year-old who's starting to play music? Well, to yourself. If you could have said something to yourself starting out back oh, then. Okay. I just wondered if there would have been just something from the decades of experience and and ups and downs and wisdom that you might have just said, oh, yes, that would have been a really sensible thing. Or you could have said, no, it's all fine. It's fine. Um, I, I wouldn't say, uh, no, I, I wouldn't, I'm not, a, I'm not a blind optimist. <laughs> <laughs> there are some things I'm sure we could have done better or I could have done better. Um, we were very stubborn in the start uh, and probably um, because of that ended up like uh, not doing things. Well, I don't know. No, I'm kind of glad we didn't do it. We didn't do anything that, that I feel like we compromised or something. We were very, very principled that we wouldn't do any deal with any shitheads, like any big labels or any of that stuff. Um, and not do do like do any stuff with advertising or any of that stuff. I don't know. We just didn't want to sell sell our ass down the street. I don't know. I don't know. No, I'm quite happy. <laughs> yes, well, that's the, that is the I, main. And, I, and I'm I still want to play. I still have. I still really want to play. And I mean, I don't have much money, but um, it's. I know tons of musicians that have tons of money and they don't feel like playing. So what's I don't know. Did, no, I don't did, know. The, did the last two years, did that, was that difficult to get motivated to play, you know, to sort of pick up your guitar or things like that? I didn't, I didn't touch it. I didn't play my, I, for, for there was about a year and a half where I just didn't play. And I just, I just um, made stuff on the computer because I, I, I also make music um, on the computer. So it's not like I, I wasn't making music. I just didn't play guitar. Yes, uh, and I just made music at home, and I listened. The last year and a half, I listened to so much music that was fantastic, and that's also I, how I got into doing this radio show once a month because I, 
I started listening again. I realised I wasn't listening to enough music because we're so busy playing all the time. Your ears get tired and you don't feel like listening to the music and that much music in the van. Yeah. So the last year and a half, I've just listened to tons of stuff and it's great. There's so much great music happening now, not just like, I'm, I'm not, you know, it's not like there was only good music from when I was young. There's fucking amazing music every year comes out and there's so much to listen to. So that's great. That's what I've been doing, listening. Listening. And hopefully that's what the rest of the band have been doing. So when we come together, we'll have all this stuff in our heads and something will, something new will come out of it. Yes. Who holds the kind of the, the key to the lockup? You know, do you have a sort of a band lockup? Um, we, yeah, we do have a band lockup, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Where all our gear is, yeah. Um, Terry's got it. It's it's in the countryside. Um, it's a rehearsal space in a village near where he lives because he lives in the countryside. Yes. But my amp is here. <laughs> um, so that's fine. And yes. I, I, I can I can uh, practice. I don't I don't practice. I don't practice. Um, I only practice uh, guitar when when it's when it's with people. I don't practice by myself. I never did that. Um, so your fingers are going to have an amazing shock, aren't they? Well, they did because no, I started playing again recently, and it, for the first week, it killed me. It was like super painful. I, they were bruised almost, but now now they're okay again because I've been playing again quite a bit with different um, different groups and stuff. Excellent. Um, and I'm going I'm going uh, next week on on tour in to Berlin also, which is nice with a Scottish a Scottish um, performer called Genevieve Murphy. She's great, very funny. And she has, she plays bagpipes, and uh, tells great stories, um, and does a bit sort of electronic stuff. Blimey, that's very eclectic. Eclectic. Well, <laughs> I've never come across someone playing bagpipes. It's great when she plays bagpipes, and they're loud. It's like it's as she doesn't have to be um, amplified, and they're as loud as my electric guitar. They they have such a volume. I mean, I guess it was a war a instrument of war to sort of intimidate the the, the English. So. Yes, well, I would imagine. What, what was her was? name again? Genevieve Murphy. Oh. Um, she has a CD as well. That sounds more kind of um, sort of more pop electronic, but the stuff that we do together as a duo is kind of quite rough with guitars and stuff and a bit improvised. But she she's. She has a great uh, delivery. Her voice is fantastic, and she is a, she's a very good storyteller. Yes. And very funny. This was amazing. Well, look, Andy, thank you ever so much for this. It's been amazing. And if you want, I can always send you a link to the, to, to, to the yeah. feature, and you can always post it in, on your Facebook page or whatever page you might sure. use. But thanks again. And, uh, yes, I will keep listening to your show, which will be very interesting, because, like you, it's quite nice to hear new music as much as... Actually, there's a lot of music that I missed previously that I'm fascinated by. So it's all right. I don't completely live in the past, by the way, but I do have a um, yes. Like, it, do you like do you like listening to um, like electronic music, like like rap or like a like English like UK rap, like stuff like that, or trap or this stuff? Oh, Is well, I'm always, your... I'm always curious and interested in, yeah. in anything that's coming out, you know, having that sort of obsession with John Peel back in the day. That's, 
there are still bits that, you know, it's a bit like you were saying that you just kind of, something just catches your ear and you just think, God, I love that yeah, song. Yeah. Um, and that's it. And the album, forget the album. I just want to hear the song that they've done. It's weird because you have to say, I mean, I just, I just search tons and tons of different styles and then suddenly something stands out and it, there's no, I don't see any logic into what, why I like that. Um, it, it's not like it doesn't make total sense, but it's really not one style. But there's always something that, that sort of um, sort of catches. So I, I try and put them together in a show, and it's just like a fucking mess of <laughs> different. It's like really all over the place. But for me, that that's the kind of radio show I would also listen to, and, and that's yes, really, that really comes from John Peel. Well, I I must admit, sure. when I do a show, I I think. Oh God, I don't want too many fast and hard songs. I'd rather have, I just want to drop that to a, an acoustic song just for my own sanity. And then, oh no, it'd be quite yeah. nice to play something. You know, I just like to juxtapose stuff, actually. I just really don't like, I wouldn't want to just play 30 minutes or 60 minutes of one thing, you know, because yeah. I just find it's just too much. So it's quite nice to put, a, you know, just to vary the whole genre. You know, it's like, that's, that's yeah. it really. I mean, I, I contradict myself because with that last show, I did that with the 80s stuff. And it, it is, or, but it was, it's quite varied still. I mean, it is a bit this sort of guitar punk. And like the character of it is you can't hear what the words are and the guitars are really loud. But um, it's great. It's great. Yes. I mean, it's good once in a while to, to dig into like one thing. There's a great, you know, Rembetica music from Greece. No. That's an amazing... Um, it's it, it, it it's uh, Greek people who were living in Turkey who were sent back to Greece. Um, the Christian Christian Greeks were sent back to Greece, um, and the Muslim Greeks stayed in Turkey in Izmir. They arrived in the port of Piraeus near Athens, and they and they kind of went underground and started playing this incredible music. A lot of them were either addicted to heroin or heavy heavy hash smokers and they just made these beautiful um very catchy sort of half melancholic half really happy songs and the style is called rembetica and it lasted from like the 20s till the 50s and then it became a bit it became a bit restauranty and it kind of got a bit clean it got cleaned up a bit also the fascist government banned the lyrics because the songs were about um heroin prostitution tuberculosis like quite dark subjects but it's yes. a beautiful it's a great um there's a whole collection of hundreds and hundreds of great songs and they're all three and a half minutes long because they were all recorded for seven inch singles right Excellent. and i want to do a show on one of those oh well i do yes we'll do <laughs> Because it's just—I mean—that's one style again. But it's—it's it's just so—it's uh, so—it's such a weird um, these moments where suddenly great music appears, like like this Ethiopian period after Haile Selassie died before the communists came in. You have this period of five or six years where the musicians just exploded, and that's why you have this great um, sort of incredibly exciting music before the dare kind of uh, clamped it down again. I think you have you have you've had that in periods in different countries. It, it's not you know it's not like that punk is the only the only free exploded music. It's like it's happened everywhere in different places at different times, and it's great. Yes. 
Well, look, I'll look forward to more of your shows. Yeah, sorry, I'll stop now. I could go on for hours. <laughs> no, no, it's absolutely fine. No, but it's curious. I'm always curious with those kind of musical scenes because it's nice. It's nice when you find something quite new and interesting. To, yeah, um, yeah. I'll, to... I'll send you some Rambetica stuff. It's, yeah, it's... I would love to hear some of that. And just so you know, your show that you sent. Have you done lots of these, or just is that? I've d- this th- that one that I sent to you was the eighth. I do oh. I do it once every four weeks. <laughs> Right. Um, it's a new station that started in Amsterdam called Echo Box about um, eight, eight months ago. Um, they just invited, invited, it's mostly Amsterdam DJs. Right. And they, try, and they try and get you to go into the station and do it live, not pre-record it if you can. They really wanted to have this live thing. Mm. And then it gets archived later. It's really fun. Oh, no, it is. It is good. Anyway, it's look. Good. Yeah, anyway. I'll let you I'll let you go but thank you ever so much for this and I'll keep in touch okay David take care where do you live Norwich Norwich have you ever played Norwich I think so (laughs) I've been to Norwich a few times I can't remember got a nice cathedral maybe not (laughs) I don't know the ex I don't know Dogface Hermans do you did you keep a catalogue of all the gigs you play yeah, yeah. I didn't, but Wilf, there's always one person in the band that does that. And Wilf did that. Yeah. And the X is insane. If you look at the X website, every gig we ever played is listed. And every band we played with is listed. That's very um, impressive. It's, it's, it's really uh, obsessive. <laughs> well, no, it's good. It's, I mean, because you'd, yeah, reg- yeah. you'd regret it later if you hadn't, actually. But, um... Exactly, yeah, yeah. And I think, it's handy because I can't remember anything. So it's good when when you can go and have a look. Where did we play? In the, how many times have we played in the Oxford? I'm going to check if we played in Norwich now. <laughs> yeah, I might as well, actually. That'd be kind of good. I mean, it, it'd be terrible if you had never played Norwich, isn't it, really? I don't remember it, though. What's the, what, what was the club in the 80s in Norwich? What was it well, called? it would have been the Art Centre, or it was called Norwich Premises. Arts. That sounds familiar. The prem, Premises on St. Benedict Street. And... Um, Things like that. So um, there you go, concerts. Do you, West with Runton? Your... West Runton? Oh, is West that Runton. That, that's that's that in Norwich. Nor- that's North Norfolk. Yeah, maybe we played there. <laughs> Did you, with, you know, with the website, does it have all the, the previous gigs that you've got? You've the done? X. Yeah. Yeah, it has every single gig the X ever played. So you just have to go to the archives and it goes, starts in 1979 in Castricum at the Bakker. That was the first gig. Um, Castricum is like a tiny little town by the sea. History. So, yeah, you, can, you can find uh, everything. There. And also you can find all the bands we played with and the number of times we played with them. <laughs> it's, it's mental. Sound engineers, <laughs> cities we've played, the whole that, lot. My God, I can, yeah, there is a, there's a lot, isn't there? I'm just in 1983. That's impressive, actually. That is really no, it's fantastic. It's it's. I'm so pleased that you've somebody has been out there doing it all. Really. Yeah, that's great. Yoss Yoss used to do that. The singer, uh, the first singer, he was really into that, and we carried on the tradition. Yeah, I can't see Norwich yet. Oh shit! Can't you can't you search for Norwich? Like, do, how do you do that? Where you just search? For yeah, Norwich? I know you. <laughs> You need a no. I don't think there is a search engine, is there? But I might, unfortunately, miss it. Preston, you played Preston. Yeah, 
Harlow, Oxford. You love Oxford, don't you? We played. We played the one in twelve club in Bradford a few times, and we. Used oh to always God, that would have been terrible not to, wouldn't it? The knitting factory we, in New York. We used to always have to repair the PA first before we played because they said, "Ah, oh, the Dutch guys are coming over. They can repair the PA first. Yeah. <laughs> so we'd rep they'd repair the PA before the gig. God, nineteen ninety eight. You were really on the road, weren't you? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I can't, yeah, there was some years we did a lot, like a hundred, well, never more than a hundred or so. But, um, and then some years we just did 50, 50 or 60. Yeah, but there was, there was a lot, my God, yes, the early O years were big ones, weren't they? Yeah. yeah. Amsterdam. That, that's before all the children arrived. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Yeah, it does happen, doesn't it? Right, look, I'm I'm still going through your list. And did you say the Dogface Hermans have a website with that kind of information? They don't have a website, but we have a list somewhere, but it's it's analog. I have to dig it up. Will oh. made it. I'll, 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 I'll have a look. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see where you play. But we did about 350 gigs, Dogface Hermans. Three or 400. It still sounds brilliant today, doesn't it, the band? I mean, it doesn't sound that like, oh, God, that's a bit... It sounds fresh to me. Yeah, still. it does yeah. sound good. Sorry, I'm just into 19. No, I don't think you ever played in Orange, actually. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> shit, I know. Oh, that's terrible. No. That's terrible. I know. But then, oh, you know. Art Centre sounds familiar, but maybe because I. But you played the Colchester Art Centre instead. The very first gig we played was Nottingham Musicians Collective, <laughs> and there were six people there. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good start. That was a promising place. Anyway, look. Did you, in, did you interview John Robb, by the way? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah John. <laughs> he's great. Yeah, he is. He's such a dude, isn't he, really? But yeah. um, you'll have to he just... keeps going. He is incredible. But yeah, he does his thing, actually. Anyway, look, I'll let you groove <laughs> yeah. on. But take okay, care. Yeah. See you later. Okay, great, Dave. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was me in conversation with Andy uh, Moore from... Um, the X and also Dogface Hermans. Um, a massive thank you for giving me the time for that interview. Um, if you want to contact the band, you can go and Google X, the X, EX, that's it. Um, there is information here, there and everywhere. And also, if you want to contact me, I know. That'd be lovely. You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show. Also, these have all been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on iTunes, Podbean and Spotify. So there you go. Keep it positive and groovy, you know, because frankly, um, life's just too hard. <laughs> we just don't bother, really. Um, yeah. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.